0: last time in class we finished off with the humanistic perspective and so then the uh the next perspective that i want to tell you about is the trait perspective what does it mean to have traits what is a trait it's a characteristic yeah and when we think of traits in psychology, we generally think of relatively stable characteristics that don't change that much through time. Uh, the other perspective, than the trait perspective, is the state perspective, the idea that, um, that your behavior is, um, is momentary and it can change from time to time to time. Uh, so we might study, for example, people's trait characteristics, but we might also uh, be interested in studying how their behavior is affected by the situation or the state that they're in. right? Uh, and so um, the trait perspective really comes out of um, the 1940s, 1950s, uh, really searching for an alternative to the psychodynamic model or the psychodynamic perspective. And uh, trying to find out if we can measure scientifically the degree to which people are more or less a particular way. Their characteristics are more or less um, similar or different. And so what you have to do if you're going to do that is develop what are called factors. And a factor really is just um, a measurement. And one of the factors that, uh, the one of the original factors for personality was iSync's introversion and extroversion, extroversion. And so iSync developed a measurement that would tell us how To what degree someone was more introverted, that is uh, introverted, more withdrawn, more uh, reserved maybe. And the degree to which someone was extroverted, very outgoing, easily able to kind of mix in uh, parties and that kind of thing. And so then the question was, well, can we predict certain kinds of behavioral characteristics? Yes. Uh, the more, if I know how introverted someone is, I can predict to a, a reasonable amount of certainty how they're gonna behave in any given situation. So all things being equal, someone who's more introverted in one situation is going to behave more reserved and more withdrawn than someone who's extroverted uh, in that situation. Yep. Uh, when people talk about a type A or type B personality, are they talking mm. about these two factors? Uh, the question is uh, about type A and type B personality. Th- uh, type A and type B personality is a constellation of behavioral characteristics that's used to describe someone who is more prone to heart attack and heart disease. Um, and uh, so there was, there basically it, it comes out of epidemiological research on a heart disease and people who have this constellation of characteristics the type A personality tends to have more um, heart disease than the type B personality. It's a different uh, you know it's kind of a it's not really a personality it's not considered part of the personality uh, measurement perspective that um, psychologists generally use Uh, because it's got so many factors in it it's not very useful to lump all that stuff together and say type A. You can't predict their behavior that well, but you can predict the likelihood that they'll have uh, heart problems, yeah. So this is one factor, introversion, extroversion. ISYNC then added a second factor which helped predict uh, behavior more. Stability and uh, instability. and so what he came up with was a way to based on where you scored on each of these factors it would kind of put you somewhere in this dimensional space so if you scored highly on stability and highly on extroversion um, you know you might be very sort of outgoing uh, very jovial very friendly um, you uh, wouldn't be subject to, you know, big changes in mood or or behavior, right? Very, you know, rock solid, you know, generally somebody that people would like. On the other hand, if you score over here, high on introversion, high on instability, um, then you're, I guess, like um, Ted Kaczynski, I don't know, so, you know, holed up in a cabin somewhere sending bombs to... Um, People at universities, so uh, so this hel- this kind of um, these two factors help to kind of predict behavior, but there was still a lot of variance. The same person who measured this much and this much on introversion and stability, or extroversion and stability, um, this behavior might be ver- this person's behavior might be very different than that person's behavior. And so what that means is there's variance. Mm-hmm. And the goal, whenever you're trying to develop measurements in psychology, is to reduce the variance. Because the more variance that you explain by one of these factors, the more likely you're going to be able to accurately predict behavior. Yeah? What if you were like, um, Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, somewhere down in here. I don't know, yeah, you'd be, uh, you'd be okay, yeah. So, uh, so uh, Cattell then worked off of Isenck's model and he developed an additional 14 factors. So he wound up with, uh, he started out and he started out with like three, four, five, six, seven, he he just like ballooned into this huge 16 factor model, which is really hard to conceptualize, first of all, in your head, but it's also really difficult to deal with in terms of giving someone, you know, a test that can measure their personality because there's so many items, so many factors that it becomes really uh really onerous. And what happens is through some statistical methodology uh these 16 factors wind up being whittled down into what are called the big five factors or the five-factor model. And these five factors, it turns out, predict behavior almost as well as the 16 and better than the two-factor model. So um, questions on this stuff? So here's the five factors. Um, One factor is called openness. Now, openness does not refer to the degree to which someone is self-disclosing. Right? It's not like you know how open are they to telling you their secrets. It's actually openness to new experience. So, are you the kind of person, for example, who likes to eat at you know eat weird foods or at ethnic restaurants? Are you the kind of person who likes to eat the same thing, um, you know, relatively the same things over and over? It's almost like adventurousness. Um, So you're willing to try new things and new experiences. Um, The second factor in the Big Five is conscientiousness. And this has to do with the degree to which that you tend to be organized, neat, um, uh, predictable in some ways. right? So if you're high on conscientiousness, you're very organized. If you're low on conscientiousness, you're going to be very disorganized, very messy. And uh, the third factor is um, one of Isink's original factors, extraversion. We talked about that. Fourth factor is agreeableness. And agreeableness basically has to do with how likable are you to other people. How friendly are you in situations? how uh easy is it to get along with you uh do you put you know do you put barriers in the way for people to get along with you? You know well, some people do that you know you try to get to know them and they 're like you know they don 't want anything any part of you right um and then the fifth factor is called neuroticism in your book i think uh it 's now been changed to emotional stability um and the reason that they changed it, well, let me tell you what neuroticism is. Neuroticism is basically how, how likely you are to respond to, to people or things in your environment um, in very neurotic ways, um, with anxiety, with suspicion, with um, uh, emotional lability it's called, your emotions kind of go up and down they don't you know they don't stay real stable, versus emotional stability, which is um, someone who you know maintains a relatively level head all the time and um, isn't subject to these um, changes in mood uh and generally um people with emotional stability are easier to get along with as a result, so it's conceptually connected to um agreeableness. So I liked neuroticism because it made a nice acronym, right? O-C-E-A-N. That's how I remember it. Uh, So now it's O-C-E-A-E-S. O-C-E-A-S. So that's not so great. Anyway, uh, they changed this because all of these are valenced. There's a word called valence. Valence in psychology means um, how, in this case, how sort of good or bad they are, how positive or negative. And these are all positively valenced characteristics. Whereas this one wound up being the only negatively valenced characteristic, so it was um, modified to bring it back into valence with the others. Now. I keep forgetting to produce a a Big Five test for all of you. I'll try to do that and bring it in next time. Questions on the Big Five stuff? Would what? Uh, being forgiving probably would <coughs> fall somewhere into agreeableness, maybe. I don't know. You know, there, uh, someone, uh, we might be able uh, making a drug deal. Or, you gotta, <laughs> or maybe you got a bet on the Cleveland game today. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, we might be able to look at people who are generally forgiving and see where they score on these big five. And then we would be able to, if we measured someone else in the future based on their big five scores, we might be able to say that they were likely to be forgiving. Yeah. Yep, Yeah. She's so uh
1: emotionally stable and set in her ways. Um but she's really that of a kid still, you know. I want wanted to comment that's
0: my perspective on her. Right. Uh so uh, her behavior, uh, you're talking about your um your sister's behavior who's younger than you. Um Her behavior in that way is generally referred to as temperament. When we talk about children's behavior, we talk about temperament. And there is some relationship between temperament as a child and behavior as an adult, but I don't know what the relationship is. Um, I think your book will talk about it, or maybe did talk about it in the development chapter. You might go back and uh, review the development chapter on temperament and see what the research says about temperament as a child versus an adult. I just don't know what it is. Yep. Good. Good. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> Yeah. But other parents were like, Oh my God, your daughter is uncontrollable. And
0: then now they're like, Oh, and I'm just like, oh, OK. Yeah, so you've changed a lot over the course of the years. And so that kind of uh brings up the question that we one of the controversies we talked about earlier in the chapter was the idea of stability versus change. You know, how much is our personality how much does it change over our lifetime and how stable is it over our lifetime? Um now we don't generally measure this stuff in children, uh, and I think that's because um, their personality development is uh, so incomplete. And remember um, back to the development chapter, and, uh, for example, Erickson's Stages of Development." And um, you know, you go through a lot of changes and a lot of transitions from the time when you are young to when you're really into your adolescence or later. Um, there's huge changes, for example, during adolescence in your personality. So uh, my suspicion is that it would be hard to predict from childhood to adulthood, but I'm not sure what the data are. Yeah, um, Christopher, do you have a question? Um, uh, you i that Okay. Just
1: talk,
0: ask about how the of development change Yeah, and don't forget, for example, with children, up until they're about three or four approximately they have these very um they they view the world very egocentrically and until they develop for example theory of mind they see they think everybody else in their environment sees the sees the world exactly as they do and um so that's going to change uh that's going to have an effect on personality too of course yeah yeah good question Okay, so so far we've been talking about the idea that um, we have these relatively stable characteristics that can help predict our behavior in situations, and so then that brings up the issue of um, the thing is that we have personality, but it doesn't fully explain the variance in behavior uh, across situations because you you have a relatively stable personality but in the classroom, your behavior is quite different than your behavior at uh, a kegger party, right? What do you kids say these days? What do you call a kegger party these days? A rager, okay. Hanging out at a rager, you're not the same person almost as you are in um, in here. Um, you know, partly maybe due to the alcohol consumption, but uh, and the alcohol disinhibition effects, right? But, to a large degree, you um, behave very differently so so then this brings up the issue of um, the relative influence of situation and disposition and so um, that is the that 's the root of what 's called the social cognitive perspective in psychology um, and the social cognitive perspective recognizes that yes we do have individual differences and individual differences is almost like a code word for personality you are each individually different because of your personalities but um, the situation has an effect on how you how you behave or how you respond uh, to any given stimulus So then what comes out of that is the idea that it's not a simple relationship. It's not that the personality determines behavior or the situation determines behavior, but rather a particular personality in a particular situation is going to behave differently than another personality in that situation, or vice versa. If if you're in different situations, you're going to behave differently. So there's an interactive effect. They interact together to cause to, to result in um, complex behaviors. And so, uh, so when we think about behavior, we think about the self, uh, and we've been talking about personality in terms of the self, identity, um, who you are, uh, who what your self-concept is, and what your conception of other people is. The self, and then Uh, The situation, so depending on what kind of situation you're in, you may need to use uh, different kinds of behaviors, or you may just engage in different kinds of behaviors. But oftentimes the situation demands particular kinds of behaviors from people too. Um, And uh, we'll get into uh, talking about the fundamental attribution error, which is that most people think of others' the behavior of others as due to their uh, dispositions when in reality uh, the behavior of others is more often due to situations. Um, So the self, the situation, and then the third factor that's going to come to play in the social cognitive perspective uh, is culture. And so we see these very significant differences in behavior across cultures. Uh, here's just one example. If uh, if I were to show you uh, an aquarium picture, you know, maybe a, a you know a recording of an aquarium scene, and uh, you would see a bunch of fish and plants, uh, but there is generally one larger, faster-moving fish in the scene. And uh, so I ask you, what did you notice in the aquarium scene? And for the most part, people in North America, you all, would probably say, I saw the big fish. We take that same experiment over to Japan, and we run the same experiment. We say, what did you see? And it's more likely that they'll describe things in the relationship of objects in the background or the relationship of those objects to that larger fish, rather than focusing on that one single solitary large fish thing, right? So um, so collectivist cultures and individualist cultures are going to interpret situations very differently. Their perception of the scene is entirely different, for example. Um, so it's no wonder then that um, that we have these big differences in behavior across cultures, yeah? Do well, you want me to? Do you want me to show it? Oh, you've seen it. I'll show it. Uh, if yeah, have you have you seen this? No. Anybody? See? Okay. I'll show it to you. Uh, so this is a little video clip. And it'll ask you to uh, engage in a particular task. Just follow the instructions.
1: This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team? Is 13.
0: How many got it? Most everybody.
1: Yeah. Did you see the moonwalking bear? Huh. The moon walking bear. <laughs>
0: So um, this, is, this is an example of a phenomenon that uh, psychologists refer to as uh, selective attention. You basically have uh, a, limited, uh, a limited amount of cognitive capacity to, uh, hey, exit full screen, OK. You have a limited amount of cognitive capacity with which to process visual information and so if your focus is directed in one area it's very easy to miss something that seems very obvious um, if you're cued into it um, uh, that's there and so uh, let that be a lesson those of you who try to talk on your cell phones and drive humans aren't built that way okay yeah so what's that um it's really it's not about Visual pathways versus other kinds of pathways. It's about cognitive capacity and the ability to split attention between, for example, a conversation and focusing on a conversation and um, all of the complex array of stimuli that are in your uh, driving environment. You know, we take it for granted. You know, you get in your car, you jump in your car, you drive around, and you take for granted exactly how complex and really. uh bewildering really that that is because once you become accustomed to it you start tuning out things that you don't need to pay attention to right so um uh so yeah so it's um generally the research uh shows that it it doesn't depend on a particular pathway but it has more global cognitive effects in terms of uh uh selective attention yeah did you have a Sure, yeah. Or you just get somewhere you don't really know that you went past it. You know that it's there, but you did not going past the building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I were a dispositionalist and I played that first clip for you and you didn't see the moonwalking bear, I could say, oh, you're a bunch of lazy slobs for not noticing the bear. But really, it's the power of the situation in affecting your... Um, ability to to uh, to collect all that information and to process it effectively, right? Yep. That a yeah, you it be yeah, better, right? you have to make yourself cognitively busy in order to cause that um, selective attention deficit, yeah, yeah Okay, so um, here's a couple of individual difference variables that are kind of interesting uh, uh, this is among hundreds or thousands of individual differences that we can measure one of them is known as locus of control and so locus uh, you know the root here uh, having to do with location or place um, where you see control in your life. Um, Individuals with an internal locus of control tend to see the outcomes of situations as very controllable by them. Whereas people with an external locus of control will see situations uh, as uh, being as being under less individual control by them and more subject to uh, external factors, right? So uh, if I have an internal, if I'm high on internal locus of control, then I might tend to attribute my exam, my good exam grade to my Hard work, whereas if I have a high external locus of control, I might attribute my high exam grade to the fact that the teacher made the test too easy, right? And vice versa, if I have a high internal locus of control, uh, a high external locus of control, and I get a bad exam score, then I might say, "Well, the teacher just made it too hard." If I have a high internal locus of control and I get a bad exam score. I won't feel very good about myself. Um, And then what's going to happen is there's going to be another factor that's going to come to play here, which is self-serving bias. And we'll talk about that later. Okay, so uh, another one that I like to talk about is optimism. People differ in optimism, not necessarily so much in how broadly optimistic or pessimistic they are. But what's more interesting is a couple of types of optimism. Um, we, uh, psychologists can measure the degree to which that someone has a high level of realistic optimism or a high level of unrealistic optimism. And here's what happens. Uh, people with a high realistic Uh, level of optimism tend um, to not take as many risks as people with high levels of unrealistic optimism. So uh, when we look for example in experiments on undergraduates, those that are sexually active, uh, high levels of unrealistic optimism is correlated with uh, unsafe sex practices or sex practices that uh, particularly have to do with not using uh, effective contraceptive methods, and when we ask people why they didn't uh, use effective contraception, what they'll generally tell us is they just feel less vulnerable. Volu- they don't feel very vulnerable to uh, to, un- to, un- to negative outcomes in situations. If you consider that negative, um, but so then you might say, well, why have this? unrealistic optimism, what use would it be? Well, it turns out that those individuals who have high levels of unrealistic optimism also have high levels of self-esteem. And so um, it may be that partly that unrealistic optimism helps them feel better about themselves, even though they're in these situations where they're creating risky uh, behaviors, perhaps. And it's important to feel good about yourself.
1: don't,
0: yeah, I don't think that sort of what you might call pessimistic people would, I don't think they're just part of that study. Um, I don't know if pessimism like uh, is studied. Uh, as That's an interesting point. So um, here, here's, here's something interesting about depression, uh, clinical depression, uh, major depressive disorder. People who have a major depressive disorder tend to have a more accurate appraisal of their life circumstances than people who don't have a depressive disorder. <laughs> it is sad, yeah. But here you go. Maybe part of that unrealistic optimism is ignoring the things that would bring you down, right? Right. So optimism as in itself may be a buffering effect against, you know, uh, what's, I don't know, anybody know where this quote comes from? Yeah. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it must be one of the existentialists, but I don't know. Uh, so uh, the quote is, uh, you know, men, uh, something about men uh, living in um, states of quiet desperation. Is that Emerson, or yeah, I think so. no? He's a transcendentalist, wasn't he? Yeah, I don't know. So anyway, um, so this idea that you know, the world is really a tough place to be, and um, it's not always a really pleasant um, s- place to be. You know, think about now I- in our current situation where we've got a planet that's heating up. We've got, um, you know, wars, active genocides going on in the world. Um, Our economy is going down the tubes. It would be really easy to sink into, you know, a state of desperation. Um, But maybe this uh, optimism helps buffer from that uh, realism, yeah. so pessimism as a defense against disappointment interesting yep I was trying to think of a Freudian defense mechanism that would match that, but I can't um, so uh you know how I like comics uh this is uh perhaps this is perhaps a good uh illustration of a uh, unrealistic optimism. I've I've tried to take my cat on a walk and it's not pleasant. Hey, you know what they got now though? Uh, cat strollers. You can take them out like they're like a baby. Yeah, yeah, I'll try to find a picture of it and put one up here. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're zippered in. They have a little mesh enclosure. Yeah. And they got like food and water in there if you want to take them for a long walk. Yeah. It's crazy, huh? All right. So, use a stroller. Don't use a leash. Leashes don't work. Um, Okay, so now I'm I'm starting to make a bit of a bridge from personality psychology to social psychology. Uh, Oftentimes in uh, academic programs, like in graduate schools, you'll see personality and social psychology uh, in the same area together. And that's because uh, the more that we study personality, the more that we study the situation, and the power of each of them, we see um, how complex the relationship is between personality and uh, situation in terms of determining behavior. So uh, this comes under the broad um, category of what's called social cognition. So how we think about ourselves and how we think about other people. One of the uh, biases we have, you remember when we talked about cognition and we talked about uh, biases, which are like filters. They help us, they're filters through which we see the world and um, filter out information that we uh, don't want to pay attention to. Um, And one of the biases we have in person perception is called the self-serving bias. And so uh, here's how the self-serving bias works. Mm -hmm. Basically, we like to feel good about ourselves. We like to maintain a high level of self-esteem. And so the self-serving bias allows us to do this when we succeed. But more importantly, it allows us to do this when we fail. Um, And what happens is when we um, succeed at something, when we're successful at something, We attribute that success, attribution, that's an attribute, attributed uh, characteristic. We attribute that success to our disposition, our personality, um, that we're a good person. We succeeded because we're good. When we fail, what we will do oftentimes is attribute that failure to uh, the situation. Uh, I failed the exam because it was a cloudy day, and I'm in a bad mood on a cloudy day, right? Um, The thing is that this not only works for individuals, but it works for groups. So our in-groups, people who are more like us, we will tend to attribute their success to their disposition. So uh, the... uh, Red Sox uh, beat the Tampa Bay Marlins uh, in baseball. And they did that because the Red Sox are a good team and they have good team cohesion and good coaching, right? Um, but at the beginning of the season, the uh, Red Sox got beat by Toronto. And they got swept in three games. and. Um, I think the red sox lost because you know it was like it was just the beginning of the season and they're not used to playing in these dome you know these big dome things they like playing outside right so the situation allows me to explain the failure and not have it fall on the self on who i am as a person right now um here's what happens with other individuals and other groups we not only explain our successes to our disposition but we will explain other people's uh, successes as a result of the situation and other people's uh, failure as a result of their disposition right so the Yankees uh beat the Red Sox because uh, you know they got lucky that day. The um, but the Red Sox won because they're a better team. They beat the Yankees, and so here's kind of how it looks if you graph it out, um, based on who is winning or uh, failing. Um, The the attribution falls on disposition or situation. So when we succeed, we tend to attribute it to our disposition. When they succeed, we attribute it to the situation, right? And this is all tied into something broadly known as just world beliefs. Um, Just world beliefs is the idea that um, good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people, see? We are good people, right? They are bad people. So, um, so in this way, it allows me to always kind of feel good about myself. It's a good thing. Except <laughs> that, you know, a lot of the time we're lying to ourselves when we do this, right? We really failed because we didn't study for that exam. It wasn't because the teacher made it too hard. But sometimes we need to maintain that self esteem. We need to bolster that self esteem.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: You know, this is um when when we look at this stuff, we're looking at um, normal individuals. Um, and um, when we start talking about depression, that can have effects on attribution. One of the things that's very common among uh, individuals with chronic depression or um, major depressive disorder is the idea that they are very dichotomous. Mm-hmm. They tend to see things in extremes, in black or white. Um, and very little, sort of, in the middle. And so, when I fail, I don't just make a mistake; I fail, right? So it's just it. Part of it is probably that shifting of the perception from moderate to extreme, uh, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Self efficacy,
1: yeah. Self efficacy is um like systems of divination and things like that, like uh uh birth signs. Yes. Like, you know, I failed the test because there was a high torus rising and that cuts off high positive
0: energy from Mercury. Um partly, <laughs> yeah. But it's also the hindsight bias. Did your book talk about that yet? Mm-hmm. No, that'll be in the next chapter. The hindsight bias is, you know, basically um, they say hindsight is 2020. 20. Yeah, we tend to, when we look back on situations, we tend to pay more attention to, sit, to um, uh, areas where we were correct, right? And so if I had gotten this horoscope and I failed the test, we look back on that and say, oh, of course, I could have predicted that at the time, right? Um, but yeah, but yeah, uh self-efficacy is going um, is going to be impacted by um and that you know someone who um someone who believes in I don't know what the correlation is between believing in horoscopes or divination and uh external locus of control, it might be that there's a high correlation between those two, but I don't know for sure it seems logical, but't I've never seen the data, so I don't know. There's going to be lots of variation. Yep, yep. (laughs) One of the things that we will do sometimes is uh, we will uh, we will sort of we will. Let me think about how this works. I'm going to, I can't, I'll talk about it next time. I have to refresh my memory on it. Okay. Um, okay. so we talked a little bit about culture, so self-situation culture. And um, when we look at uh, individualist cultures, and remember that this is on a continuum. So you've got a continuum from individualist to collectivist. And over here somewhere is the USA. And a little just a little bit further along the continuum to collectivist, you've got uh Canada. And then uh out here somewhere is the uh, poster boy for collectivist cultures, which is Japan. And a little bit more individualist is Korea and then China. right? So East Asian versus North American is how we typically break out collectivist and individualist cultures. And when we look at um, individualist <laughs> cultures, what we tend to see is a strong emphasis on personal freedoms. And people tend to take a great deal of pride in their accomplishment, right? In collectivist cultures, uh, what we tend to see is the freedoms are not so much individual or personal, but rather they're tied to um, your family and your status. So in this way, um, we see individuals and their behavior in a very different light. People can behave in very individual ways here. People are going to be expected to behave in very family or status relevant ways, right? And when we look at accomplishment, uh, what we tend to see in collectivist cultures is instead of taking pride in something they do well their successes uh what they will tend to do is demonstrate humility basically being humble or modest right yes i succeeded but my success of course um is due not only to me and my effort but the support of my family and my teammates and things like that right Um, or anybody could have done well in this situation. I just happened to do well, yeah. Yeah, Uh, uh, what's Mm -hmm. the ethnicity or cultural heritage, do you know? (laughs) European-American? Okay, Um, here's one of the things that... um, Here's one of the... It it really depends a lot on... Family relationships depend a lot on on ethnicity and culture. And so um, I suspect they're not... um, do they look what's that okay okay Um, you know it it's just it may be some individual differences there Um, in um, British systems and don't forget Europe is over here somewhere they're more collectivist than Canada and so um, in the British system for example especially uh, status Cultural, you know, your status within the society uh, has a lot to do with what you do and what's expected and that kind of thing. Whereas in the United States, there's less of an influence on that, but it still does have an influence. Um, So I think that that may be where that's coming from. And the idea that um, family heritage and family history is a source of pride. Whereas in the United States, you know, we're all a bunch of mongrel immigrants here, right? and so, um, so there's less of that kind of characteristic. But I'm, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Yep. So what about uh, somebody who, my boyfriend is Albanian, and he
1: was a refugee, he was, you know, 16 years and they were rescued. And his culture is very, very family oriented.
0: and It's more collectivist. But what about they've raised half their life there, and then they move and finish the rest of it here? What happens then? Good question um here 's what happens um, and this is data from uh, oh, well let me do the, let me do one more thing and i 'll talk about that so um so self esteem, as we said, is one of those things that we generally think of as being a good thing, and so um, if we think of um, North American individuals versus Japanese individuals, one might tend to predict that Japanese individuals have lower self-esteem because they tend to be more humble. right? They tend to be more self-effacing, more modest, um, tend to attribute successes to um, you know, other people in their environment as well as themselves. Um, but it turns out that that's not the case. And here's, what, here's how this works out. Um, your self-esteem has to do with you feeling good. I am a good person. Um, and, uh, but the thing is that good in North American culture is very different than good in Japanese culture. Um, in North America, we consider being good as, um, having a high sense of self-regard and um and and telling people that. Yeah. I um I'm doing a great job teaching my class using psychophysiology laboratory exercises. Right? I didn't mind going to the public relations office and saying, hey, hey, look at me, look at me, write a newspaper article about me. Right? Um, but uh, in Japan, um, when we look at what self esteem means, being good is very different. Being good means um, having sort of a self critical attitude or a humble attitude toward the self and telling other people that you have a self critical attitude. So, can you imagine, you know? somebody from Japan coming here and saying all these self-critical things about themselves and you go "Um, I think you need to go to a counselor and work on your self-esteem right no so uh, this is uh, research done by Steve Heine and I worked with Steve uh, at the University of British Columbia and uh, he looked at um, he looked at uh see if I can draw this graph for you. he looked at self-esteem um, among Japanese um, individuals, and what he found was that native Japanese displayed um, in, ter- in terms of uh, self-esteem scales that we would use in, in North America. if We just translate those to Japanese. They score relatively low compared to native Canadians, who would score up here somewhere. Or actually, they score a little lower. They're down here. And here's what happens. Japanese who have traveled outside of Japan Maybe just you know for visits. Um, Japanese who immigrate to or emigrate—I guess the word is right. Japanese who emigrate to Canada uh, and haven't lived here very and haven't lived in Canada very long will score a little bit higher. Oops, this is second generation. Second generation Canadians shoot way up. Born in Canada, but Japanese culture. And then um, interestingly, actually uh, these wind up a little higher than native Canadians. So um, exposure to North American culture changes the conception of the Japanese um, individuals in terms of self-esteem what self-esteem means what being good means right so um, so yeah culture you know does have an effect even if you're not living in it Um, yeah
1: Oh, yes. So
0: the way they express themselves um, you know, to other people would not be um, necessarily across the board meeting the same thing. Yep. Um, there's always more um, differences within groups than there are uh, between groups, typically. Yeah. Yeah. There's more differences within sex or gender in behavior than there is between men and women there's more variance within women or within men than there is between men and women, so yeah. We typically get those kinds of results, yeah. Okay, um, so how is it then, what kinds of factors will have an effect on uh, behavior? Um, in uh, intro psych, One of the things you saw, hopefully, was the uh, Bobo the doll uh, experiment. Did I show you that clip? Those of you who weren't in the class, maybe you didn't see it. Mm -hmm. Um, But here's essentially what Bandura did. Uh, He took children and exposed them to, um, showed them an adult who was modeling violent behavior toward this inflatable doll that was called a Bobo doll and you would knock it down and it would pop back up. And uh, when the adults modeled violent behavior toward the doll, children who watched that were much more likely to engage in aggressive and violent behavior with the doll and were more likely to use um, uh, new ways of being aggressive toward the doll than were children who uh, watched an adult play non-aggressively with the doll. So um so the situation has an effect just in the aspect that when we observe other people around us, that provides a cue for us to um change our behavior or or in what way that our behavior would be appropriate or inappropriate. Um also cognitive demands. So the uh selective attention test that I gave you um, was a good example of the idea that when you're cognitively busy doing one thing, it's hard to do other things at the same time. And what will happen is if your environment is very, uh, if the situation is very stimulating, and you need to pay attention to a lot of things all at once, your ability to um, think and make decisions is going to be impaired. And so then you're going to use cognitive shortcuts to make those decisions, like heuristics. And we'll talk about those. next uh, in the next couple classes. Um, we know that uh, crowding has a big effect on behavior. Uh, both crowding and heat um, increase aggression, OK? Um, and over the next uh, couple of classes, we'll be talking about um, a couple of different aspects of social behavior. One is called bystander apathy. And bystander apathy happens when someone, um, here's what happens. In a situation where you are among um, a lot of people, when there's a lot of people around, um, you're less likely to um, uh, to be helped if you have an emergency than when there's just one or two people which seems very counterintuitive. Um, And also, another thing that plays into bystander apathy and is is a huge influence of the situation on behavior is conformity, um, the idea that we tend to conform to the behaviors of individuals around us, and then also obedience, which is the idea that we tend to look toward authority figures for cues about how to behave. So we're always looking out there in our social environment, trying to figure out what's the right thing to do. Um, to a large part, based on what other people are doing, we're very social animals in that way. Let me show you. Um, yeah. Conformity is, is you basically behave in the same way as somebody who's a either the beh the same way uh, as the authority figure, or you um, or you take directions from the authority figure. Yeah. And we'll look at the um, at a couple of experiments in that regard. Let me show you a little, just before we go there, let me show you a little video clip that'll uh, demonstrate the power of the bystander apathy effect.
1: very distressing to watch situations like this where people are obviously suffering and no one's actually helping them. But what we have here is two conflicting rules. One is the rule we ought to help
0: and the other is the
1: rule we ought to do what everybody else is doing. And here you have a, a group of, effectively, a group of strangers who are exerting the pressure not to intervene, not to help, and it's very difficult later and 34 people have passed without stopping. People
0: don't really want to know. They just haven't got the time. Well, they have got the time. They just don't get involved.
1: Unwittingly, these strangers have silently formed a temporary group with a rule, don't get involved. They're afraid to stand out from the crowd and won't take action if no one else does. This woman has clearly spotted Ruth, but she conforms to the rule and does nothing. Watch what happens though when someone else helps. She suddenly finds herself in a different group with a new rule. Dressed as a respectable gentleman. Now that his dress is in keeping with those around him, how long before he's rescued? Hello, you say? Oh,
0: Six
1: <laughs> seconds. Even call him oh, sir, and suddenly everyone's a good Samaritan. Do you from epilepsy? No. Why you mind lying on the in right? Because he's part of the
0: so um, so I like you know, I like that clip, it um really illustrates strongly how powerful uh other people are in determining what kinds of behavior we'll engage in um you know, and most of these people probably you know uh most of these people looking at and saying, why didn't these other people help? They probably made dispositional attributions, oh well, uh, they didn't want to get involved or um, they were busy, right? As opposed to the power of the situation on um, uh, behavior. Yeah, a question. Is it just with strangers or is it even within? Because that happened to me personally in an office where I knew everybody. I laughed first with everybody and I passed out on my desk. I think they thought I might have been sleeping. I don't know. Yeah. Y- yeah. Um, here's, here's what happens. Yeah. In order to help, one of, the fir- one of the things people have to do immediately is interpret it as an emergency. So if they interpreted it as, she's sleeping, or if they interpreted it as, oh, he's drunk, oh. That, um, that makes a big difference in terms of helping behavior. Um, So if you're in a situation where, you know, if if you're in this situation and you're able and you're able to talk, you need to communicate very clearly that this is an emergency and you need help. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first guy was saying, yeah, help me. Right. So that's, you know, those people definitely had to have interpreted it as an emergency. But or maybe maybe not. Yeah. 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 So like, yeah.
1: I wouldn't, unless I saw a person like bleeding or something like that, or
0: if, you know. Actually, um, blood acts <laughs> as a, as a severe uh, inhibitor for helping behavior. No, actually, then they start, then they start having fears of contamination. So' stereotyping out there. So on a busy street corner, you see people that are homeless, and so the people that pass by these people are they callous people. Probably not. For the most part, they're not. They're probably for the most part, quite compassionate people. But what happens when everybody else is passing by? That's the power of conformity in the situation, right? Um, and when one person stops to help, then it creates the opportunity for other people to start joining that conforming group, right? So we're very, you know, uh, we have very strong conformity pressures um, in our lives. And, and it's so invisible, it's hard to see it when, when it's not brought to your attention in uh, clear detail. Did you have a question, Laura? So, if your dad stops because he's a firefighter, is that because he's stopping because of his personality or because that's his role that's his social role so um, so you know this you know yeah, this woman who stopped may have been um, exceptional in some way you know and, and so you know this isn't obviously a controlled experiment where we 've got lots of subjects and things um so it may have been an anomaly but um uh typically um um that kind of situation uh if if someone is an expert oftentimes they will step up more quickly than other people but yeah 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 hold on a second yeah Oh that's a good question. So if uh, if you run conformity study yes, coll- actually collectivist cultures mm-hmm. um exhibit higher levels of conformity than do individualist cultures. Right. That's a good question. Um I don't know if something like you know, if they've done something like this on collectivist cultures, but I think that I think I think the conformity pressures to not act would actually be quite high. Uh, plus, you know, you've know, you got the, uh, what do they call them? The briefcase men or, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, salarymen. men, yeah, in Japan. And so these are people who, you wanna say what salary men are? Um, they're, they're people who, um, basically office workers, and they work so hard that they're exhausted when they go to go home. And sometimes they'll just fall asleep on the subway, and they'll be riding the subway all night long with their briefcase. And uh, you know they'll wake up in their suits and go to work the next day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe you know in those kinds of cultures, that's normal to see someone passed out on a subway. I don't know. Yeah. I was
1: that culture.
0: So, the yeah. Country? So normality within cultures is probably going to have an influence too. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. Before we take off today. Yes
1: whereas if you're in a rural setting yes like, you might be more att- attentive
0: to the individual yes people. yes again essentially the size the size of the crowd is diminished in rural areas yeah it's yeah it does it does work differently in rural really areas stop, yeah yeah. yeah and they tend to you know rural uh, residents tend to have more of an interdependent kind of existence okay. too so um All right, so I'll see you all next week, huh? Thursday. Yeah, pray for good weather.